You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. If we were to take very seriously uh, the text that we have before us this morning, we could assume it would be possible to leave our home this morning as a saint come up here to worship and go home as a sinner. And that it would also somehow be possible to leave home as a sinner and come up here and worship and go home as a saint. And so the question I ask myself as I come to worship with you this morning, what will the meaning of this hour have to me when I am back at home later today thinking about What was that that we did? This is the story uh, that Jesus tells us. It's a familiar parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector or publican. And it's a story, Jesus says, of two men who came up to the temple to pray. Now, you always come up to the temple because it's on a mountain. And uh, you always go down when you leave. They, having prayed, go down to their homes. But Jesus says only one of them uh, was justified. That is, uh, only one of them went home a saint. So we're going to look at that. How is that possible? Would you open up your Bible to Luke chapter 18? You'll find our text on page 853 of the Pew Bible. It's Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And let's stand together and read this passage aloud as the saints. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you think it might be true, you may say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, we're reading God's holy word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. The grass fades and the flower blooms, uh, falls off, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. And as you are, will you join me in prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart Be acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't mind being honest with you and saying, uh, I found this a very challenging text this week as I was studying it. It gave me a really hard time. And um, I think it was at first that it seemed so obvious what it meant. And, And then I realized it's giving me a hard time not because... 
It's a difficult text, hard to understand, because I think it's absolutely simple and elegant, and its meaning lies right on the surface. But I think what was giving me a hard time was that even though I understood the text, there was something in me that says, I don't think I'm getting it. There were clues to this reality. And uh, the first clue was that as I thought about this text and the Pharisee, and I thought, you know, thank God that I'm not like the Pharisee. <laughs> and then something inside of me said, wait a second, okay, there's, there's something wrong here, George. Let's look a little closer. So yeah, that was the first clue. The second clue, I noticed that um, the tax collector is really hard on himself in a way, frankly, that I'm not. I mean, he's beating his breast. And, and uh, so I thought, couldn't he lighten up just a little bit? And that was my second clue, that maybe I was missing something. And then the third clue was, really, frankly, the ending of the story. The ending of the story seems to be kind of the way it should end, which is never the way Jesus' stories are supposed to end. There's always an element of surprise. And this bothered me that I couldn't find the surprise in the story. So I thought, maybe I'm missing something. Well, let's look, if you will, at these three questions uh, of mine, at least, uh, about the text. First, this thing uh, where I say, thank God that I'm not like the Pharisee. Well, and I do want to say, I'm not. I'm really not like the Pharisee. Uh, I'm, I, I, hey, Jay, wait a second. <laughs> they pull out stones. Uh, I'm not a thief. I'm not a, a rogue. I'm not a robber. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not. Um, I'm not uh, self-righteous. I'm not um, uh, um, a, a jerk or arrogant. I don't come in the midst of God's people and say, look at how great I am. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, uptight and rigid and uh, moralistic. And I'm not like all the people who are. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not like the Pharisee. Thank God. And then i got to go back and look at 11b again. You know, it says, says God... I thank you that I'm not like other people. And I realize I am. Jesus has laid a trap right at the beginning of this parable, and I've dropped right into it. It's like a tar baby. You see, the more that I insist that I am not like other people, the more that I become like this Pharisee. And here's the point. This is the first point that I learned. It's that... When we, when we, uh, when we, what we learn in the Pharisee's prayer is that if we measure our moral standing against other people, we will become righteous and self-righteous and judgmental. If we measure ourselves against other people, we will inevitably become self-righteous and judgmental. See, this, the irony is that this way of thinking about this parable it, it increases hypocrisy in me. And hypocrisy is something I really don't like, and I don't like to think that I'm participating. So how is this happening for the Pharisee? Maybe I can get how it's happening for me. Well, he, his morality is a social construct. In this sense, he's not a religious person. He's a humanist. He, 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 he doesn't have an absolute definition of what's right or wrong. He has a relative de definition, and he measures himself against other people. We are, for him... A morality benchmark. But notice, he's selective. And we're all very selective. 
I mean, we say, well, George, are you going to think you're going to heaven? Well, you know, the bad answer is, is uh, well, if I'm better than half the people in the world, right, or the, or the median, or, or better than the average person in the world. You know, if I'm starting to benchmark myself against other people, I'm in real trouble. And that's what this Pharisee is doing. But he selected people that are bad enough in his eyes that he will make the grade, that he's better than half, right? He's actually gone out and he said, okay, well, I'm going to go for the, uh, the adulterer, the rogue, the thief. And because next to them, I look pretty good. That's how we can feel good about ourselves. I tell you what, you struggle with something that I don't struggle with. I don't know what it is, but I know that I struggle with something that you, you don't struggle with. Not all of us are tempted by the same sins, uh, right? I'm, I'm not tempted by gambling. Uh, poker just doesn't, I'm not smart enough to play poker. It doesn't, it doesn't have any uh, appeal to me. You might struggle with that. But I struggle with anger. And you might not struggle with that. You see, so if, if I compare myself as sort of a, a righteous person because I'm so good with respect to poker and I have you in my, uh, my data set as my control group or my benchmark, then I immediately feel better about myself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I see then how close my affinity is with this Pharisee. It's bad, but it's not all bad because Jesus tells the story to just the likes of you and me. Look at the introduction. He says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. So he's got an invitation for me. He has a solution. And so we read on. And as we do, I come to the tax collector and my second clue that maybe I'm missing something, not in the text, but in my life. The tax collector comes uh, really hard on himself. The Pharisee comes right into the middle of the temple, and he stands there, calls attention to himself, lifts his eyes and his hands as he prays, which wouldn't have been unusual at the time, but the tax collector will not even gather around people. Uh, he doesn't need to, by the way, because people are not the measure of his uh, success in life. He's by himself. He uh, will not even uh, lift his eyes towards heaven. He's beating his breast, and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's kind of hard on himself, don't you think? I mean, he's got to believe in mercy. He's got to know that mercy is at least a possibility, or why would he even have come to the temple? I believe in mercy. I believe in forgiveness. And so, if you believe in forgiveness and mercy, then why beat yourself up over your sin? Why take it so seriously? It kind of all goes away. God forgives. Well, it's all true. And yet, I just wonder if maybe I've been somewhat dismissive of my sinfulness. I wonder if I haven't given it the proper weight in my life. You see, this tax collector does have a standard, does have a measure, and it's not other people. And I don't know when it happened in his life or how it happened, but somewhere along the way, he stopped comparing himself to other people. He stopped saying, well, I'm not as good as them or I'm better than them. He started to measure his life against the perfection of God, the absolute, pure, transcendent, moral beauty of the creator of the universe. The one who cast galaxies into space. The one who invented the, the, the minute mystery of DNA. This beautifully rich, creative God became the standard for him of all that is good and bad. 
Somewhere along the way, he started to take the scripture seriously. Leviticus 20 says, be holy, for I am holy. He realizes that God wants us to experience in our nature all that he is in his nature. Very goodness itself. That we would be the reflection of his glory. That we would be as whole as he is. And his attitude suggests to me that he thinks he's going to meet this God face to face in the temple. It's a very dangerous standard. It's an extraordinarily perilous and daring thing to come face to face with that standard. And yet he does. He says, I know who God is. He's the measure of my life and I know who I am. I have fallen short. A sinner is somebody whose life has missed the mark. The word for sin is taken from uh, classical Greek archery term, missing the mark. That's the story of my whole life. I've missed the mark with my life. Not just, do, I do sins, but I am a sinner. That's his diagnosis. But I'm going to bring it all to the one God who is the measure of goodness. And so he comes prepared to do what has happened so often in the pages of Scripture when someone comes before God. Isaiah, in the presence of the Lord, said, Woe is unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Peter, when he's in the fishing boat with Jesus, Jesus says, hey, try that side of the boat, cast a huge catch of fish comes in, and Peter realizes, this guy's not a good fisherman. This guy is the Messiah. And he falls down at the knees of Jesus in fear, and he says, get away from me. Lord, I am a sinful man. The transfiguration, Matthew records. I, I love the transfiguration. The, the, James, John, uh, Peter, they're at the, on this mountain with Jesus and he, all of a sudden the glory uh, appears in him and Matthew says his, white, his clothes were shining whiter than any launderer was ever able to get them. There's kind of a little note of envy in that that I appreciate. You know, I could never get my clothes that white. But the, the brilliance and the glory of God overwhelms him. He's got no metaphor for it. And when the Lord speaks audibly, all of them fall face down on the ground, terrified until Jesus will touch them and lift them up and say, fear not. Or the Apostle John, who later again will have the same experience. The book of Revelation begins with a, um, a dream that he has, a vision of the glory of God. And John says, I fell at the Lord's feet as though dead. Perhaps the tax collector had read Psalm 24. It was oftentimes read when people came up to the temple to worship. Psalm of Ascent, it's called. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false. And he knows who he is and it breaks his heart. So... What we learn in the tax collector, and this is the second point, is that God truly meets all who draw near with a humble and contrite spirit. He's going to have a meeting with God at the temple. And we also can have a meeting with God if we come in just this way as Jesus describes. I love uh, Annie Dillard. She always has very colorful language and in her book, The Holy, The Firm, she writes, she's talking about high church and low church liturgy. She says, the higher Christian churches 
uh, where, if anywhere, I belong, come at God with an unwarranted air of professionalism, with authority and pomp, as though they knew what they were doing, as though people in themselves were an appropriate set of creatures to have dealings with God. I often think of the set pieces of liturgy as certain words which people have successfully addressed to God without their getting killed. <laughs> these, are, these words have worked, and so they're safe. Uh, in the high churches, they saunter through the liturgy like mohawks along a strand of scaffolding who have long since forgotten their danger. If God were to blast such a service to bits, the congregation would, I believe, be genuinely shocked. But in the low churches, you expect it any minute. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And a humble and contrite spirit is the beginning of good news in your life. It's where it begins. Well, the Pharisee sort of sidles up to God at the center of the temple, and he's almost handing out cigars to God like a chum. You know, he uses uh, a thanksgiving form for his prayer. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. And yet this man comes, humble and broken, honest about who he is, bringing his whole self and all of its brokenness to a God who is merciful. Well, the third thing that puzzles me is the ending of the story. And what surprises me is that I'm not surprised. Um, God favors the tax collector. Two men come up to the temple to pray. They both go down, but one goes down justified. But only one goes down justified. Now, I look at these two characters, and I, I see two men, and I give it the old you know, political beer test, which one of these two candidates would you rather have a beer with? You know? And for me, it's, it's a definite, or root beer, okay? It's definitely... <laughs> It is definitely uh, the tax collector. I, I, I think the tax collector, I think maybe I'm thinking of Zacchaeus, you know, but I visualize him as a short little chubby guy, you know, climbs trees. He's got a little bark under his fingernail. It probably smells a bit like tobacco. Sure, he's done some shady deals over the course of his, his history, but he's a working guy, you know. I'd like to spend some time with him. And who's this Pharisee? You know, I, I imagine he smells of formaldehyde slightly, you know. Looks like John Calvin, and he's been dead for almost 500 years. Uh, and he's got parchment coming out of his pocket. He's just uptight. Of course God's going to let the good thing happen to the tax collector. He's just an appealing person. And then I realize how little I know about the first century. Because as you study it, you realize this is absolutely a scandal. Jesus is implying that God can break every rule in the book if he can send this man down justified. This man, the sinner, justified and not the saint? Because in the first century, a Pharisee was certainly the saint in the mind of every listener that, Jesus, that heard Jesus. As I told you before, the Pharisees were a reform movement from the second century B.C. They were resisting the, the corruption of the temple under foreign occupation. And they were trying to bring the piety that was what God had prescribed for his people, nation of Israel, uh, into every aspect of their life. These were saintly people. They just did everything right. They were heroes, a, a, a grassroots political and social movement, a growing sect. They had it right, the Pharisees. And the tax collector, on the other hand, is a sleazeball. The tax collector is somebody who made the highest bid to buy the right to 
extort taxes from his own people. He'd undoubtedly be a Jew, buys the right from the Romans, goyim, uh, unclean occupiers, who are doing just the opposite of what the Pharisees are doing, oppressing the people and keeping them from realizing the dream of being God's people in the promised land. And here the tax collector is this subversive kind of complicit person who sells out his own people at every chance he gets for his own personal profit. No. Jesus does pick the wrong one. He picks the sinner. It's like we have a, a philanthropist and, and a Ponzi scheme guy side by side, and Jesus picks the Ponzi guy. It's like we've got an a international foreign aid worker and a terrorist side by side, and Jesus picks the terrorist. You know, it's like we've got a Tibetan monk and a shoplifter side by side, and Jesus says, I'm going to go with a shoplifter. How is this possible? And, of course, now I see the beauty in the mystery of the grace of God in the story, because that's exactly what Jesus wants us to ponder. How is it possible that he would take someone who is absolutely unrighteous, without any merit, without any moral worth, and say, you are a saint. You are a saint. You go home justified. What does justified mean? Justified is a legal term. We realize that, and that actually three different forms of it pop up in this one little paragraph. We realize this is a forensic setting. Yes, it's set in the temple, but we're also invited to imagine a courtroom. Just to confirm that, look at the parable that precedes. These two parables belong together. They're both parables of prayer, and they're both courtroom parables. first one's about a woman who uh, wants some mercy, and she comes before the judge, Jesus says, uh, repeatedly. And if she comes persistently enough, even a wicked judge will say, have uh, your way, I'll vindicate your case. And now, likewise, we have uh, what looks more like a civil case where we've got two people coming before the judge, both seeking vindication, and one of them is going to go home with the ruling, and it's the tax collector. Justification. When I say, if you and I are having an argument, and you make a statement and I say, justify that, I don't mean that you should change it, withdraw it, or amend it. What I mean is that you should put that last statement in the context of our conversation, tie it in with the rest of the argument. And that's what justification is. It doesn't actually change us inside, doesn't change our nature, it changes our relationship to God. If you're working on a word processor and you justify the margin, you've got a bit of text that pops out. And you don't change the text itself or the meaning, but you just move it back into right relationship with the margin. That's what it means to justify. That's what God has done. He has justified, justified the tax collector. How could he do that? Well, in this parable, at least, all we get is a simple request. That's really the only difference between these two men. We suspect both of them need God's forgiveness, but only one of them has the honesty and the faith to ask for it. Tax collector says, Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee doesn't think about it, asking. He's too self-congratulatory. Perhaps he doesn't think he needs God's mercy. Perhaps he doesn't think that if he were to ask God, God would grant it to him. But for whatever reason, he simply doesn't ask. That's the only difference. 
Jesus tells a story at the end of his of Luke's long Jerusalem narrative. Luke gives us about ten chapters, starting in chapter nine, of, the, of Jesus turning his face towards Jerusalem. He's on a journey. He's headed toward the cross. And at the end of this section, Jesus now gives us a, a story that interprets for us the meaning of the cross. Because Jesus will come to the temple one day. He will be bound and ridiculed, mocked at the temple, in the uh, Antonio Fortress on the northwest corner before Pontius Pilate. He will be judged. He will be forced to take a cross and to walk to Golgotha, the hill where he will be crucified. And as he does, Luke will tell us, the people were beating their breasts. Jesus will be lifted up on that cross. And as he breathes his last breath, there's a Roman a centurion, a soldier, who looks at Jesus and he says, Praise be to God. For this man is truly innocent. And he uses that same word for just, righteous. He even, the centurion recognizes the injustice that Jesus Christ is there. Absolutely righteous. Fully God in all of his goodness. He receives your condemnation and mine. This is the judgment this is the way that God makes it possible for us to experience justification, to be sin, uh, saints, not because of who we are, but because of what he has done for us. And so Peter would write, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's what I learned from this text, these three things. First of all, I just got to quit comparing myself to other people. It is not helpful. Secondly, I need to take seriously the weight of my sin. You know what? I will not reach out for mercy until I know it's my uh, option of last resort. Most of us are that way. I need to know the seriousness of my sin so that I will call out to God for mercy. And then finally, I need to hear God's judgment about me. Not guilty. You are a saint. You can go home today justified. That's the mystery of the communion of saints. Karl Barth said, you know, when the Bible speaks of us as saints, it doesn't mean specially fine people. It means saints in the same way that Paul wrote of saints in Corinth. They were a salty group, if you know anything about the Corinthians. He says, uh, Karl Barth, we are queer saints. And so we are. We come to uh, this service of healing this morning as a recognition of our need for mercy in our lives and our freedom because of the grace of Jesus Christ to be absolutely honest about who we are. We are not a group of people who are trying to look good and because of that are getting worse. We are a group of people that are free to look bad like a tax corrector begging for mercy and knowing that in the grace of Jesus Christ, because of that, we are getting better. He is working transformation in our lives. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, 
or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.